Good morning. Good morning. My name is Richard Crocker. Our reading today is from Matthew chapters 4 and 5. Now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good morning to you here. Good morning to you watching online. Good morning to my church, who's 
joining us live stream as well. So this really is a joint service. And as always, it's a delight to be with you all. Last time I was here a few weeks ago, you're facing that way. This is a lot different. You're not getting baked and squinting at me while the sun comes over my shoulder and hits you in the face. Um, it's a joy to be here. Many of us were together last night for a worship night. Our church, y'all, a couple other sets of people. So that was a lovely evening. So I feel like I've been ushered into this morning in a really lovely way. So can I take a minute and pray for us as we come to look at this passage? Dear Lord, we offer you ourselves and we invite you wherever we are watching or participating in worship this morning. We thank you for these words which are so holy and for speaking to Matthew as he wrote and as was a, a first person story of what it meant to follow you and that these have been handed down to us. And we offer us to you as we come to study them. We pray you would teach us and guide us and prune us and instruct us this summer. In your holy name, amen. Amen. I want to give you a question that you can talk about later today with friends or family or roommates. Um, if I was to ask you to think of one word that you would use to describe yourself, right, one positive word, not like the thing that drives you crazy about yourself, but one positive word. I'm going to need that. <laughs> um, thank you. What, what would that word be? Right, if you're going to take a minute and describe, this is the fundamental thing of either who I am or who I aspire to be. What would that word be? I'd encourage you to talk about that later today as you're together. This morning we're kicking off a common series again of our churches looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We have jokingly called it the Summer on the Mount. We didn't use that as the blurb because we just felt like... That was the groanable dad joke, but it's still a good description of what we're going to do. Our church and your church are going to be looking at this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, together this summer. And we would encourage you, if, if you can't be here in person with you guys, watch online. If you are out of town, y'all, Christchurch Vienna, and miss online, you're welcome to join us at 5 o'clock on Sunday nights in Annandale at Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church. We are trying, Johnny and I and our my colleague Chris Lugo at our church, to give each other a little extra break in the summer. So you're going to see me this Sunday, next Sunday, and the following Sunday. My church is going to see Johnny a fair bit in July. So... If you see me, one of us here, we're probably at the other church this summer as well. And, and the driving question of the summer is encapsulated in the book that we're encouraging you to get. What if Jesus was serious? What if when he taught this stunning set of teaching, and we believe it was compiled over many times, that Matthew probably heard it lots and then compiled it in this way, but also heard it in a particular way on the mountain, what if Jesus really was serious about this is what it looks like for us to be his people in the world? Because we believe that he was serious and we believe that it's stunning but also difficult and maybe even getting, getting more difficult than it used to be to look like this, for this to be responsive to what Jesus is doing. So I want to give you two invitations this summer. First... I forgot my book, so Johnny's kind of going to show. We'd encourage you to pick up this book called What If Jesus Was Serious? It's by a man named Sky Jethani, J-E-T-H-A-N-I. Um, we intend for it to be for adults and kids. One of the joys of this book is there are lots of diagrams. So you could discuss with your kids what if Jesus was serious. It wouldn't just be for adults. So we'd encourage you to pick that up. It's a short little book. You could go through your way on vacation. You could still take the book, talk about it, and use it from now through the end of August. And then I want to encourage you and invite you to at least one time a week 
over the summer from this Sunday through, let's say, Labor Day to read all of Matthew 5 through 7 at once. It takes about 10 to 12 minutes. Okay, so once a week can we commit to reading Matthew 5 through 7 to get all at one time. So everybody will try to do that, okay? Maybe if you do it all summer and you're a teenager, Rod Nunez will buy you something at Chick-fil-A. I don't know, you'd have to ask Rod. But that could, Rod's up, thumbs up. Johnny, ask Johnny if you're an adult. Maybe Johnny buy you something at Wawa. Blair, Blair's gonna ask Johnny for that. So, my church, I will do that. If you have a Bible, can you turn with me to it, whether it's in your lap or an iPhone or somewhere? This morning we have two particular goals. We want to look at the context of this passage, which is why Richard so lovingly and brilliantly read Matthew 4 in the lead up to Matthew 5, to help us understand what is Jesus really doing in this section. It's actually a weird section of a gospel. And we want to ask why. Many of us have read through Matthew, heard it before, maybe never stopped to ask, why is this here? And then second, we want to grasp the fundamental cornerstone of the whole sermon. Like, again, if I was going to ask you what's fundamental about you, what's the fundamental premise of what Jesus is teaching? So where we are in Matthew, understanding some of the context, again, in the past couple chapters, chapter 3 and 4, Jesus has been prepared and, and shot out into his public ministry. He's been called and affirmed. By his Holy Father, his Heavenly Father, and when he was baptized, right, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. An amazing verbal stamp of God's love for him. Then right after that, he's been tested, right? You guys have looked at this. He went out into the wilderness, and he spent 40 days being tested by the devil very directly. And now as we see in this passage, chapter 4, verses 12 and onward, he's literally on the move. Like he's moved physically. Some of you have moved some of you are about to move, maybe. He, Jesus has moved. He doesn't live in Nazareth anymore. He lives in Capernaum, which is a city on the Sea of Galilee, away from Nazareth. And he's preaching. He's inviting disciples. He's going into synagogues. And he's confronting the devil. It's an utter change of his life. Very dramatic change. He, for 30 years, he lived in Nazareth with his family, was a carpenter, and now, boom, he's this itinerant preacher living in Capernaum. His life is flipped on its head. If any of you have ever moved, if any of you have college students and you think about, Jesus doesn't understand me. In September, when you're feeling totally disoriented as you're there, you can be like, oh my gosh. In Matthew 4, Jesus had to do the same thing. Maybe Jesus' roommate was a pain in the neck. You can empathize with Jesus. And we get this lovely summary at the end of chapter 4 of what's happening. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read Matthew, I kind of skip over this paragraph. Like I've read it a lot. I'm kind of hustling my way through to chapter 5. But when you step back, you go, gosh, this is pretty exciting stuff. It's pretty incredible. He's healing people. He's confronting the devil. He's casting out demons. He's healing people who are paralyzed. Look at the geographic spread alone. So if you map from the... Um, the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, just to Syria, it's 150 miles. 
Not even saying like down to Jerusalem and Judea. So people are coming from 150 miles away to hear Jesus. That's past Harrisonburg. Right? So like probably like Roanoke, really, depending on how you drive. People are hearing about Jesus. They are traveling by foot to, to see this guy. So obviously this paragraph is describing not just three days or whatever in Jesus' life. This is over weeks. The desperate are coming to him, and they're coming from Jew and Gentile areas. The Decapolis are ten cities that are Gentile cities in that area. Capernaum is a very Jew and Gentile city. So it's not just Jews coming to, to learn about this potential Messiah. These are people so compelled, they'll move past the racial tension they live among to find Jesus. Isn't that a lovely theme and sermon we could preach? And again, this begs some of that question. What is happening? Why are they coming to hear Jesus? And you get the central thesis in chapter 4 when you hear this line, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn your lives around, here comes the kingdom of heaven. There is literally a historical break happening in the world in this chapter. The, the kingdom of heaven, what heaven is like, what heaven intends, what God wants for you, is breaking into our physical world. There's a new kingdom coming. It's really important to hear this. Otherwise, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, which we'll look at the next couple of weeks, can feel like just an idealistic set of platitudes or this behavioral burdens you and I will never accomplish. And what Jesus is really saying is this heaven is breaking in and the more you're with me and the more you know me, these are the things that happen. The Beatitudes are actually the implications of being close to Jesus. You will begin to mourn, but be comforted. You begin to be poor in spirit. There's these things that happen not because you are trying to do them, but because you're offering yourself to Jesus. And this kingdom is going to inbreak into your own heart and life. Literally, an entirely new historical reality has come to the world. And what you're seeing are the fruits of heaven. What is being described at the end of chapter 4 is what heaven is like. In heaven, there's no sickness. In heaven, there's no paralysis. In heaven, there's no devil. And in heaven, there's an entirely different value system. So this is all happening, and then this arresting phrase from Matthew at the beginning of chapter, chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now again, the next couple weeks we'll look at the Beatitudes and we'll see the whole Sermon on the Mount we believe Jesus taught some privately to the disciples and to the crowds. At the end of Matthew 7, you'll see he's talking about the crowds listening to Jesus. But at this beginning, what, we're, what you sense is that Jesus actually saw the crowds and pulled away for the few to teach the few. And we believe Matthew was one of the few. We looked at that together when I was here a few weeks ago. So this teaching is a huge distinctive in Matthew. Some scholars call Matthew the teaching gospel. And again, we read and hear so much of this teaching, we might forget to ask, why at this moment is Jesus doing this? Because again, look at the end of chapter 4, all that's happening. It's, his brand is growing, right? His likes are up. Think about what it would look like on TikTok or Instagram to be following Jesus around Capernaum at this time. Casting out demons. Healing the paralyzed. That would blow TikTok up. Right? It would. Whether you have TikTok on your phone or not. Can you imagine that? And yet Jesus doesn't blow it up even more. He pulls away to teach the few, the people who are following him. Why would he do this? And this is our first point of the morning. Central 
to this gospel of the new kingdom, central to this gospel of the new kingdom, is Jesus forming a kingdom of people who witness to the world and the good news of the cross and resurrection. Central to the message is not these activities or the ideas, but it's the forming of people for his name, which means central to the gospel is you and me. Was Jesus serious as he teaches the Sermon on the Mount? Absolutely, because it's going to form you. It's going to form people. He's going to form us into representing this kingdom where there's no sickness and where the blind can see and where the lame walk and where the devil's cast out. Some scholars, again, call this the upside-down kingdom, which I think is a lovely phrase for what Jesus is doing and does in us. He turns our kingdom upside-down. So the reason he pulls away and teaches, and again, this teaching is so stunning that Matthew compiles it in five through seven, and it's actually two sections of teaching. This is the first of two big sections of Matthew of teaching. Is it not because Jesus wants to write a book on his great teaching? He's not got a study group together to see if he can put some parchments and spread it around Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. No, he's forming healed people into his kingdom. He's changing the lives of people because the deeper invitation is not be healed, it's follow me. In many ways, the deeper miracle of the paragraph you heard Richard read is the disciples leaving their nets to follow because they're stepping into the upside down kingdom by walking away from good jobs and their own stability and families to follow this guy who they've studied and watched and been with. Jesus is forming people. You and I are utterly important and valuable in the kingdom of heaven. Now we forget that. I think over the last year we've had unique ways to be reminded of how important people are to teaching. I've described before here one of the things that strikes me over and over again about how we describe teaching in the U.S. You know, if you ask someone who teaches kindergarten to 12th grade, they will tell you what age they teach. What do you teach? I teach fourth grade. I teach high school English. That's sort of where the break starts to happen. But I teach, and the implication is you're kind of teaching people. But when we get to university, what do we often say? I teach history. I teach chemistry. And what struck me and some of us at seminary was it began to be the same temptation. Well, I'm going to teach or preach this book. And so I try to remind myself every week or two when I preach is I preach or teach blank to people. I teach people about Jesus. Right? And I would argue if you're at a university, you're actually teaching students, people, men and women, boys and girls about English or about history. But isn't it subtle what that break means? We suddenly pull away, and many of us have had professors in university who forgot they actually were teaching people, right? They were teaching content into the ether, and God forbid you didn't get it because you're trying to pull them out of the air, right? With all due respect to university professors, some of whom are here, I know. But what Jesus is doing here is teaching people. He is utterly committed to people. And that's why he pulls away and he makes sure that his disciples, those who are following him, understand what he's saying. Now, of course, they're not going to get it fully, right? There's 23 more chapters in Matthew of them not getting it. But he's not there to, to teach a theology of the gospel kingdom. He is there to teach and form disciples. He is making disciples. What gospel do we get the Great Commission from? The gospel of Matthew. Matthew. Matthew got it. Matthew understood. That's why Matthew made sure to remind us. Jesus said, now go teach a gospel kingdom and teach a book on what it means to heal and the 12 best ways to touch Syrians. No. Matthew said, Jesus said, go and make disciples. 
which again is what Jesus is doing here, which reminds us as we step into this teaching that he's teaching you because you matter to him. That's our first point this morning. Our second is fundamental to this gospel and to this transformation of people through Jesus' teaching is that the teaching starts here at this first line of the Beatitudes. This is the most important line of the entire sermon. And it's this simple phrase that is so familiar to many of us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the fundamental principle of this kingdom. What's happening at the end of chapter 4? It's happening because that's the fundamental principle. Those people are so desperately needy that they're crying out to Jesus and he's healing them. Now the word here for poor is one of two words Jesus could have used. There's one word for poor at this time that means you're poor but you still have some sort of semblance of resources. There's another word that is you are utterly out, you have nothing. You are utterly impoverished and that's the word being used here. This is someone who is so poor they literally have nothing to bring or offer to you. This is us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I think the, the best parable about the, the Sermon on the Mount is the prodigal son in Luke 15. And if what you were going to, let's say you were casting this as a movie, and if you had the prodigal son coming to his senses, as the text so often says in Luke 15, with the pigs, and turning back to the father, this is what you would tag that turn. You'd call that scene, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because it's that point when he realizes, I have nothing, I'm going back to my father, I'm not going to negotiate with my father, I'm just going to say, put me to work like I'm a servant. A man named Kent Hughes does a great job of, of giving other paraphrases for this verse. He says this, Blessed are those who so desperately poor in their spiritual resources that they realize they must have help from outside sources. So desperately poor that they must have help from outside sources. He, also, he says it this way, Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God, for this is the kingdom of heaven. It's coming to God and saying, I don't have it in within me, I don't have the resources to love you, to love my neighbor, to love my spouse, to love my kids, to do hard good work, to be honest about my loneliness or shame or sin or temptations or living in the world or to fight racism or to forgive somebody or to be selfless. I got nothing. And if you connect the dots to chapter four, and what Jesus is saying is physically happening in the world, literally physically, incarnationally happening in the world, is that this is what heaven is encouraging you to embrace. In heaven, there'll be no more blindness. In heaven, there'll be no more self-centered, I'm gonna save myself. What is eternal and powerful in heaven, what is foundational and revolutionary and fundamental to heaven is that they realize the desire that you and I have to self-center our lives on ourselves, which only ends in death, is false. And the sooner you and I get to realizing that, the more deeply you and I are going to be blessed. Isn't it striking that Jesus, does, Jesus doesn't start a description of his kingdom with demands? Hey, you want to follow me? Awesome. Here's the things you're going to need to do. 
like lots of you have been athletes. I coached a lot, coached my kids forever. And usually that first practice, what do you do? You don't say, hey, blessed are you if you come to practice. Bless you. What you say is be on time. Be ready to go. Have water. Don't be five minutes late. Be five minutes early. Boom. Right? And you know that if you do those things, you'll be blessed. But Jesus doesn't start with the demands. He starts with the blessings. And you and I are living in heaven's fast lane, in heaven's blessings, when we can with joy declare, like the prodigal, I will go back to my father and I got nothing to offer. And this is what we can declare when, we, when our competencies run out, right? When this is an area of competency. This, I'm sure this is a highly competent group of people. I'm sure you're gifted and skilled in ways that I will never be gifted and skilled. But we're only fully blessed when we realize that ain't going to do it with the Lord. It, it, we get there when we can't credentialize our need away. But I went here and I earned this and I have that. When we can't distract ourselves enough to think we don't need resources from ourselves. When we have been at our wits ends and then had to take another lap. When we see our real selves, we are blessed. Now again, this is foreign to us. This week I was thinking something about, gosh, if I was going to write Beatitudes, I could, if I was really honest about what I thought would make me blessed, again, that'd be another fun exercise, fun in a painful, loving way, um, for you to do and maybe share with someone you know and love and trust. Blessed are blank because they will be in the kingdom of heaven. What would we say? In this city, we'd say probably blessed are the powerful. Right? Blessed are you if you have power or position because you'll be safe and respected. Blessed are those who are rich, right? Because you want no anxiety or need. Blessed are those maybe who follow the crowd because then the crowd won't make fun of you. Blessed are those, whether it's explicit or implicit in our area to our kids, blessed are you if you get into X school or university because then your life will be fine and you'll succeed. I think in the church we often communicate, blessed are you if you're married. We can also over-communicate, blessed are you if you work for a non-profit rather than a, for a business. Or again, blessed are you if you live in Northern Virginia. Or blessed are you if you're American. But Jesus doesn't say any of that. Be interesting for you to make your own list. What Jesus says is you and I are blessed when we run out of things that we think will bless us and are faced with our need. And again, at that point, quoting a friend of mine named Daryl Johnson, who's a Bible scholar, at that point, you are rich. If you want to know, when am I rich according to the Beatitudes? It's when you know you're poor. So I want you to think for a second of that place right now where you feel like you just don't have the resources you need. My guess is all of us have a place like that. Last night at the worship night, we started with a section on lament. There are two other sections, but we said this is probably the easiest section for us all to enter into together after the last year and a half. Because I bet nobody there, nobody here, has something you can't lament over the last year. Or something that's coming up. Maybe again, you're looking at summer planning for your kids now that you're out of school and what do you do? Or you're thinking about college and college applications for the fall. Or work is overwhelming. 
or again, loving your neighbors after all that's gone on in our country for the last year and the, the, the distrust that we all feel and extend to each other. Maybe you look at the spirit of the age and what the newspaper and the articles you see and the pressures that's coming in school districts and businesses and you think, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to fight that. I don't know how to be part of God's kingdom in the middle of that. Maybe you have aging parents or a struggling child. Particular habits you have that you want to conquer that seem to be conquering you. Maybe you're struggling with loneliness or sexual temptation. I want you to hear again this promise from Jesus to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That place, whether I just listed it or not, that's the place where you can especially know Jesus wants you to offer yourself to him and be a part of his kingdom. Jesus does not expect you to pull you up yourself by your bootstraps. Jesus is not angry with you that you can't make it. Oh, darn you. You're poor in spirit. Aren't you a Christian? Don't you go to church? Haven't you listened to Johnny preach enough to know you can get your mess together? Jesus is saying, I know you can't do it, and it's why I came. Be with me. Offer those places to me. The gospel I am preaching and teaching and demonstrating is in fact heaven. And this beatitude is one we have to embrace every day. You can get up tomorrow and go, Lord, I am poor in spirit. I am a fortunate pauper. That's what Daryl Johnson calls us. You are a fortunate pauper. A picture if I had a young child here and like a, a 50-pound weight and he wanted to carry Like one of the speakers, he's trying to help break down and carry stuff back to the van. And you and I knew he couldn't carry it. And, he, and I, I just stood there. And I let him kind of try. Now most kids, my kids would have done this. No, no, I got it. I got it, Dad. I got it, Papa. I'll try to get it. I'll it. And, and when would he need help? When he had figured out that he what? Couldn't do it. And at that moment, if I walked over and said, hey, would you like a little help with that? Probably say, sure, we could do it together. Picture now that thing that you feel like is, is where you are especially poor in spirit and you're trying to pick it up. Jesus is standing there watching you and asking, can I help with that? Because it's here, he's saying, that you will know especially how blessed you are. Because I came for that thing. Heaven is going to show you that that thing doesn't matter. In my heaven, it's gone. Because I'm going to carry it for you. The unfathomable reach and grace of God is only available to us in its deepest ways when you and I know we can't pick that up. Which again, is fabulous news after the year and a half we've had. Because so many of us are poor in spirit and hope and energy and desire and passion for the Lord. So I'm going to pray and again, I'd encourage you, I'm going to give you a few seconds to think about, is there something in your life that you know is too much for you? And you would hear Jesus say to you, can I help you with that? Let's pray.
Dear God, thank you for your kindness to demonstrate and allow me to reach places where I know my deep poverty of spirit. And there have been so many days over the last year and a half where I've had to, to own that for myself before you and said, I can't make it. I can't do this. And I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters here or online to be able to hear your gentle voice saying, can I help you with that if they're experiencing things in their life that are just too much, that they would realize how blessed they are because they can turn and hand those things to you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.